We've been spending the last few weeks talking about what the restoration project is and what we're wanting to accomplish over this, uh, the next 12 months. I'm going to read a text that's going to root our talk this evening. I'm going to set some context for you in the beginning of, of the chapter here, uh, but we're really going to focus in on the last couple of verses of the book of Matthew. This is Matthew 28, beginning in verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And skipping ahead to verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of God for the people of God. So over the past few weeks when we've been able to gather in this space, we've been talking about our mission goals for 2016, the things that us as, as a church and us as a larger community that we want to be focusing on, uh, to be focusing our attention on over the next 12 months. Now, that doesn't mean when the 12 months are up that we're going to leave them there, but these are the things that we're really wanting to inspire one another uh, in this journey. The first thing that we talked about was discipleship, this idea that we gather together in small groups, not just at the Petersons or the Ingalls or the Jernigans, but we gather together and we have meaningful conversations with the people in our life and we encourage them to follow Jesus with passion. We encourage them to move into more holiness. We, we, we encourage each other and inspire one another to think deep thoughts, to pursue hard answers at times. Um, this has worked itself out for me over the last month or so where I found myself in these small group sort of scenarios having conversations with people. Now, as a pastor, I try to make a lot of my time open to you guys, and if you have a need, then I like to try to be there to meet that need as much as I'm able. Um, obviously, I've got responsibilities at home and, and job responsibilities and things like that, but I really try to be intentional with creating my schedule, some time built in for you. And I can honestly say that over the last month in the conversations I've been having with some people, some people even in this room today, just the edification and the encouragement and the challenge that's taken place as I sit across the table from these people 
And this isn't always me sitting across the table from a pastor that's been in the game for 35 or 40 years. I've had great conversations with those guys and gals because they have been in situations that I have not been in uh, and I can learn from them. Already in our three-year history, we found ourselves in really difficult situations where we have no idea what to do. And just gleaning some of the information from these people that have been there, done that, has been so rewarding. But I want college students especially, I want you to hear this because as I find myself sitting across the table with a lot of you, this is not the moment where I get to show up with my fancy degrees and my big books and break out some German words that you've never heard before and I get to educate you. It's actually quite the opposite. We're sitting in conversation with you and I see your passion and I see your drive and I see your heart for Christ. That's the stuff that keeps me going. This is not just the time where I get to be the discipler and you are my disciplees and you sit at my feet and you just learn from me. I hope that there's some learning that takes place, but the, the, at the core of discipleship, I believe, is a mutual edification that takes place. When Paul was hanging out with Timothy, it wasn't just, hey, Timothy, learn all this cool stuff that I have. You can see that throughout Paul's ministry, he's like with Timothy. They're like in the trenches together doing the work of the Lord. And I think that Paul was gaining inspiration and courage and passion from the people that were in his life. That's what discipleship looks like to me. Now, for some of you, you don't know the people on the other side of the aisle and vice versa. And we would love for you to jump into some small groups and be intentional about a couple hours of your week where you say, you know what? I've been coming to church. I've enjoyed the music. I've enjoyed the teaching. I've enjoyed whatever. I've enjoyed just seeing a lot of college people here. I've been trying to find dates. I know, I know, I know some of you, okay? I know, it's all right. But like where you want to take a step beyond that, where you get to know people that can become your people here. When Tessa was talking about college students having a support system in Salisbury, man, that's so true. We know that you have support systems back home, but I can, I can attest that there's so many adults that know how to cook a, a home-cooked meal with some skill, and all they want is for you guys to show up at their table. All they want is to engage you in conversation and, and pour into you and be there for you and just do life together. That's what discipleship looks like. So we, we talked about that for a little bit, and we wanted to inspire each other. Yeah, small groups, but also beyond that, when you're hanging out with your friends, when you're hanging out with your people, inspire them to go further. Inspire them to love Jesus with more passion and more excitement than maybe they had in the past. Allow them also a space, a safe space, to ask big questions, to cry, to grieve, to process, because this faith journey that we're all on, at times it's difficult. And this discipleship-based relationships that we're trying to inspire you in that will show itself to be fruitful in the midst of lament, in the midst of the, the difficult times, but it will also show itself to be fruitful in the midst of joy and excitement and good. So we talked about discipleship. We also talked about worship, and this is something that Tessa and I have been thinking about for a while because we get a front row seat looking out to see how the music that we're playing might be landing or might be resonating or might not be landing or might not be resonating with where you are. And I know that at times, Tessa and I have kind of set the bar a little bit low because of where we are as worshipers. And for some of you, you've got like this, this move of the spirit in you where you wanna throw those hands up or you wanna be excited or you want to like, you want to go to places that we aren't seeming to take you. So collectively as a church, we want to put the hand on the small of the back and say, 
lead us, take us there. Allow yourself in the moments of worship to be honest and to be obedient and to allow yourself the response to your king and your creator that, that he deserves. We would love to see just a, a thirst for communal worship. Now, I know that worship is not just that 15-minute song set, but for some of us, this is a moment where we get to engage in ways that we don't get to engage, and we get to tap into senses that we don't get to tap into at other points throughout the week. And if that's where you are, then go there. All we want for our worship is to be um, honest, to be authentic, but also to be something that really demonstrates the heart that we have for Jesus. I've talked about this, and I talked about this when we were looking at worship, but um, thinking about the Psalms, which has been described as like the prayer book of ancient Israel. It's this, it's this teaching in, in how to worship. The way that the ancient Israelites went through that was very much like bodily. It was involved. It was hands up. It was screaming. It was shouting. It was on the floor. It was, it was like creating a posture of subservience and, and worship to Jesus. Now, there's, there's moments where we might need to go there collectively. And I want to at least allow you the opportunity that if that's where you need to be, to go there. We'll try to play the songs. I know like when we play Come Thou Fount, there's not a whole lot that can, that can happen there, but it's a beautiful old hymn, and hopefully we can hear the richness and the goodness of that, uh, that song and still be able to tap into it authentically and, and with obedience. Tonight I want to talk about baptism. We are believe it or not, a Baptist church. Uh, we are partners with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, um, and we celebrate baptism. However, I would say that collectively, we haven't really celebrated baptism well yet. Now, I know that for some churches, like, baptism is that thing that you put on Facebook, and you say, this week we had 17 baptisms, and this week we had 32 baptisms, and sometimes little churches and, and pastors like me will look at our Facebook feed and see all those numbers, and be like, I didn't even have that many people show up at church, let alone get them baptized, you know? So it's like we can, we can start into that Monday routine of, of looking at the numbers and, and fixating on that, and that's not where we are. Again, for us, it's all about being honest and being obedient and being authentic with where God has placed you and where God is calling you to, and I know that some of you are in this room right now, and you're on the fence. Some of you are like, you're, you're kind of there, but you haven't quite made that step where you want anybody to know that you're following Jesus. Maybe even in your own mind, you haven't quite made that step where you say, I'm really going to be here now. You haven't allowed yourself the opportunity to confess Jesus is Lord. Now, I grew up in a very Christian home. Some of you have heard all of my stories, and you're going to hear some of them again, yet again, tonight. Um, but I have very vivid memories of, of growing up in my parents' house and just being surrounded by all things Jesus. Um, Sunday school, yes. Christian school from kindergarten through 12th grade, yes. It was like I remember the times when I wasn't able to go to church when I was a kid because they kind of set the week off, and it was so rare when that happened. Like, Dad ran a tight ship 
in the James household, and you had to be pretty much on your deathbed if you were to miss church. And I remember every night, mom and I would pray before, we would go, uh, before I would go to bed, and I had this like prayer calendar thing that I had made in Sunday school class, and it had different names of different missionaries. So on Monday, we would pray for this missionary couple in Bolivia, and on Tuesday, we would pray for this missionary couple in India. And Wednesday, like, I just remember that, and I also remember memorizing the prayer and just kind of spitting it out. But for me, it was completely and utterly a Christian environment. I also remember that after mom would say goodnight, she would hit play on a cassette player. I am old. I am 34, so just let, let that be what it is. But she would hit play, and we would listen to things like Salty, the singing hymn book, or Colby, the Christian computer. I just want to apologize for that those things are in existence, but I remember like th- them being a, a huge part of my of my growing up. The way that I think about my testimony story as well is um, five-year-old Josh going to vacation Bible school. You've heard this story. I'll tell it again because it's good. All I really remember is I had a crush on this girl named Jennifer, and I thought that the way to her heart was wearing my orange bathing suit to this final program where we would sing our songs and rehearse our Bible verses and do our dances. And I thought, this is my night, Mom. She denies that this happened, but she does not know, okay? And I said, Mom, I've got to put on my orange bathing suit because this is going to be my ticket, right? And I remember going to this little program with these old old, old evangelists that would tell the story of Jesus, and they would tell the story of Jesus on a flannel graph board. Again, I'm dating myself here, but it's this piece of felt, and you'd take a cutout picture of Jesus, and you'd smack him on there, and then you'd walk away. And Jesus would still be on there with a boat and some fish and all kinds of crazy stuff. But now these people were sophisticated. For 1986, they were sophisticated because their flannel graph had a black light on it. So when they would put Jesus on there and they'd get to their crescendo of the gospel presentation, they would hit a switch and Jesus would glow. Hallelujah. (laughs) And I remember thinking, and this is where I might completely not know this story, but I remember not thinking so much about my orange bathing suit and just wanting to respond to this gospel presentation as a five-year-old kid. It sounds strange. I mean, I wasn't turning from a life of hardcore drug addiction or, I mean, it was just like, it's just another day, but I remember that being a flag in the ground that I placed. And as my life kind of continued in the ebbs and flows of normal middle school and high school awkwardness, there were other uh, important points in my testimony and one of those points was, and I come back to this a lot because I want you guys to understand the, the influence and the impact that you can have on people. I remember it was just a core group of, of guys who were younger than me. I was a senior and they were in 10th grade. And the weird thing about them was they didn't cuss and they listened to Christian music. And I thought that these guys had it, real, they had it figured out. And I thought to myself, what do they know that I don't know? Or what are they into that I'm not into, like, why, why is their faith working out in this way? And for me, it was just about girls and sports and, and me. What did they have that, that I don't have? And it was through conversations with them and conversations with Laura and a couple other people in my class where it was like they could unpack the gospel for me beyond the flannel graph and the black light in a way that made sense where it was actually something that I wanted to respond to and give myself over to. Now, I can't say with certainty that it was in high school when I put the flag in the ground and that was the moment when I became a Christian. I think there's a a lot of different things along the way, but I do remember a couple of really weird stories. In our, our high school, we had what's called spiritual emphasis days. 
where it's like we shut down the whole school and we just sing songs and we learn about Jesus and we play ridiculous games. It's weird, I know, but I remember one of those services really seeking God and whatever that looked like for me at the time. And I remember my prayer was very selfish. It was, what am I supposed to do with my life? Where am I supposed to go to college? And I remember I was on my knees praying this prayer, saying, God, help. What should I be doing? And it was within a couple of seconds that there was a response to my prayer, which is weird for me. But it was the guy who was speaking that didn't know me from Adam came down and kneeled down and said, Josh, ever since the first moment I've seen you, I knew that you were destined for full-time ministry. You can't cry. It's, you're not allowed to do that. I, I didn't know what to do with that. But I put a flag in the ground. And a few weeks later, we were in chapel, and I was sitting there minding my own business, and the speaker was, was, he was a really crazy guy. He played the harmonica with his nose. He wore a suit, like a spandex suit. It was blue. and had an F on it, and he was, called himself Faith Man. I mean, he was, he was a weird guy. But he was preaching, and, and mid-sermon, he stopped, and he looked at me and said, Josh, ever since the f- first moment, like, I, I know that you have a calling on your life, and I know that, that you're supposed to be going somewhere and doing something. Flag in the ground. I ended up going to Bible college. I took all these, these affirmations and said, well, I guess I should do something with it. And I, I, I won't forget, the way that I had done Christianity up to this point It was so shallow. It was so much about me and where I was gonna spend eternity and it didn't really have much to do with Jesus. And I remember being at Bible college and the first day, the professors would open up the scriptures and they would go deep. And they would just unpack truths that I had never heard. And I was enthralled. And I wanted whatever they had and some. Flag in the ground. And I remember like just how this worked itself out and the things that I was learning, the books that I was reading and the stuff that I was studying. Just for, for my, my whole faith journey, it was like these, these different markers where I would just kind of look back and say, man, God, you've, you've been with me this entire time. And I don't know when the point was when I said, Jesus, you are Lord and everything that I have is yours. I don't know when that happened. I don't have it written down in the front of my Bible, but I can look back and see God at work from the time when I was four years old wearing an orange pair of bathing suit trunks to the time when mom and I are praying these prayers for missionaries that we don't know to places that we'll never go to people that we will never meet to meeting friends and professors and having experiences and just looking back saying gosh you've been there I also remember last story 12 years old I knew that baptism was a thing. I knew that it was something that most people did, and I kind of got to the point where I said, I guess I'll do it. And our church um, had baptisms at our parents' house, my parents' house, in in the pool. And I remember just kind of going. I don't know the conversations that that happened up to this point, and this probably isn't the best way to, to do a baptism, but I just found myself like in the pool, and the pastor says to me while I'm standing there before I'm getting ready to be dunked, Do you have anything that you want to say? And I remember out of nowhere, and I'm an emotional guy, you guys know this about me, but like out of nowhere, I just start crying. And I say, no. But I knew in that moment that something was happening. We baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And a flag was planted in the ground. 
a lot of churches, they'll argue about like the mode and the meaning of baptism, like how it takes place. You can see over here that Asbury has their baptismal font and they'll take some of the water and kind of dunk it on people's heads or some folks like Baptists will take people to pools and they'll completely submerse them in water and other people will baptize infants. People disagree on what the meaning is, whether baptism should be like um, Old Testament circumcision where you take your child in to be circumcised to become part of God's covenant people. That's a really old teaching and a weird teaching, but it was like an eight-day-old baby that would be introduced into the life of the covenant in the Old Testament. And some people say that's what baptism is now. We bring our babies in and we get them baptized so that they can be introduced into the covenant. And other people think that it's different. I don't wanna say that there's one way that's right and one way that's wrong, but for us, the way that we process baptism and understand baptism, our best reading of the Bible is to see baptism as a symbol. When Paul talks in Romans 6, he, he, he gives us this metaphor that's kind of meant something to a lot of folks in, in understanding what it means to go through this ancient ritual of baptism. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Meganoita in the Greek, it's the strongest denunciation of something that's possible in that language, most scholars would say. Shall we continue sinning so that we can get grace upon grace upon grace? No. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And this is, this is the important stuff here. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So Paul is linking our salvation story with this picture of baptism. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. It's the symbol of where we have come from, death to sin, burial with Jesus, and risen to new life. This picture of being submersed and then coming back out demonstrates for us that symbol of the truth that has become a reality in where we are. We are not the same. Because of what Jesus has done, we are not who we once were. We have been washed. We have been sanctified. We have been called. And now we live in a different light because of what Jesus has done. Now, baptism is not necessary for salvation, but we think that it's a pretty important step that people can make, and I want to unpack some of that for us as we go. Baptism is, is a response. Probably the most important theologian of the 20th century, his name is Karl Barth. He was a Swiss pastor and theologian. He says, if the grateful yes of this man to God's grace is sincere, if a person responds to the grace of God that says, through my son, you can be saved, if you have responded to that grace in a positive way, Karl Barth says, if that decision is your own, if it is the yes of a heart that's truly liberated by grace, it cannot remain merely contemplative, speculative, or mediative, nor can it be merely verbal. If we've made this decision to follow Jesus, this is not something that we can just have and tuck it away and then go about our business and go to class like we, like we were the, the last week or we can't just go to our job or we can't just be the husband that we've been or the wife that we've been or the child that we've been or whatever. There's something that takes root and what Karl Barth is wanting us to walk into is it demands a response. It must, this, this response to God's grace, it must become at once the yes of a grateful work. 
It must be the obedient yes of a work which is directly commanded by the grace which has come upon this person. Now, he's, he's a, a really brilliant theologian, or he was anyway, and people have a lot of trouble with what he's saying, but here I just want to focus in on this phrase. Baptism as a response is our yes to the work that Jesus has done in our lives. It's that step that we take to say, okay, flag in the ground. It's that... that um, that passage, in a sense, from who we once were into who we are becoming, and this is the picture of that through death, burial, and resurrection. We can also see baptism as imitation. Now, most Baptist folks will see the importance of Jesus in this whole matrix. One of the first things that Jesus did was he went out into the wilderness where John the Baptist was baptizing people, and Jesus said, I will be baptized by you in this moment. And for, for Jesus, it was an alignment with the teachings of John and an alignment with the people to say, this is where we are going. This is what the kingdom looks like. This is what we are communally bearing witness to. Again, Karl Barth says, can the community of believers be neutral and passive in relation to the basic action of their Lord, leaving him isolated, as it were, in the concrete choice, decision, and act which he took therein? Can Christians see what Jesus did in this moment in the early stages of his ministry to be baptized by John the Baptist and then not respond in a similar way? No. For Karl Barth, he says the community is called to be Jesus' witnesses and to fellowship with him in this act. It must follow his act of obedience, his subjection to God, his solidarity with men, his acceptance of servants, both of God and men. The community must follow Jesus. Now, I don't wanna focus on that must word because I know that some of you, as you're sitting there, you're thinking, must, that's really strong. What if I don't? I don't think that you were lost, but I want to stress the importance of this and ask the fundamental question, why not? If Jesus is, is submitting himself to this, why are we holding it at bay? I think that there's some positive benefits that, that happen with this as well, is thinking about baptism as remembrance. This is a big quote, and I'm gonna summarize it. Um, there's a lot of stuff that happens to us when we decide to follow Jesus. Doubts invade questions that we have about who God is, what this Bible verse means, what to do with this people, what to, how to process all this stuff. There's things that can take place. There's voices even in your own head that are vying for your attention to say, you're not worth it. You're not good enough. That thing you did yesterday, that should disqualify you right here. That, God doesn't love you. There's things that take place in our mind that want to be dominant to take over and to, to, to make us doubt our self-worth and our calling and what Jesus is doing in our life. And what Karl Barth wants us to see here is this baptism is an act that we cannot reject or argue away as a fact. For me, as a 34-year-old man, I look back along, along this this trajectory of my life from the time I'm four years old to the time I'm praying every night to the time I'm going to these church services to the time I'm wearing my bathing suit, like all these different things that's happening and I see all these flags in the ground and I can see those flags are waving because God is at work 
So when those days come, when those questions and doubts invade, when I'm riding down the road minding my own business and that thought of, is this really real? You can look back at something and say, it can't be taken away, it can't be argued with, it can't be rejected. There was a moment when something was real in my life and you can go back to that and see that flag in the ground where God is calling you to continue on in this journey. You can also think about baptism as, as an indicative of life change and this is where I wanna focus. I don't care so much about you guys being dunked in a tank of water as I do you being uh, the recipients of something that's so drastic and so transformative that you are no longer the same as you once were. This is really like when we talk about baptism and how we want to focus on that, it's not just the numbers of people that get in the tank. It's, it's the stories of those people that it represents. It's the stories where people say, God has done a work in my life and I can't do anything other than respond to it in a way that demonstrates my excitement and my passion and my drive. To, to allow you guys the opportunity to speak and to tell your stories about how Jesus has completely wrecked your world. As a church, we've, we've not really done this too well because we're not the altar call type of church, but we want to give you moments where if it's planting a flag, great. If it's something bigger than that, great. But we want you to be able to tell your story to demonstrate the fact that your life is being completely and utterly transformed. The way that Paul demonstrates this is he's got this picture of death, burial, resurrection, but as he goes on, he says, for we know that our old self was crucified with Jesus so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. For Paul, this is like a matrix of talking about who we once were and now how we're different, and for him, he's saying that we are fundamentally changed because of Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. This is why we do what we do, because we want you guys to move from death to life. We want you to put to death the things of sin and move into holiness. We want you to experience Jesus in a different way. We want you to be able to look back and say, I'm not the same person that I was, and God is calling me into something better. And we want that to manifest in your relationships and the conversations that you have with people and the way that you can minister to folks who are hurting and broken, how you can become an ambassador of hope and life for these folks. Finally, we can think about baptism in two ways. Um, we can think about it as an invitation. For some of you, like I said in the beginning, you're on the fence. And perhaps this is a moment where you can respond, where you can walk into that obedience, where you can have that, that, that time where you say, I'm following Jesus with everything that I have. And for some of you, you need to respond to that invitation. Others of you, you're sitting here like, okay, this is great, I got baptized 10 years ago, so what's this have to do with me? When we think about the passage that Jesus is, is, is describing to his disciples, he says, therefore go. Make disciples, engage with people in these relationships that are deep and that are fruitful, and as you go, baptize them. 
in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. For, for those of us that have already been through this process, it's not just something that you put in the ground, you say, great, I got that taken care of, now I can go on and do whatever it is that I wanna do because here we have been called to make disciples and to baptize people and to have our relationships impact others and allow them to see Jesus through us. College students, you have a huge platform for this where you're sitting in classes with people that need to know Jesus. What does it look like for you to share Jesus with people in commons or on your dorm floor or the people that you're RAing for or the people that you're in a young life relationship with, like that kind of stuff? How does that work out for you? Folks that just have normal jobs, what does it look like for you to be an ambassador of Jesus in the workforce and for people to know that not only do you go to church, but you live differently and your allegiance is to Christ, what does that look like in your life? Parents, how is Jesus transforming the way that you minister to your kids? Are you leading them to follow Jesus or by our actions, are we forcing them to turn away because they don't see the consistency in us that they should be seeing? It's not just this baptism, go jump in a tank and get dunked, great. It's also collectively as a church, we should be passionate about ministering to the needs of people. We should be passionate about allowing folks to hear the story about Jesus. And we should look for every opportunity that we have to invite them in to experience grace and forgiveness and hope. And along the way, as Paul's saying, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies any longer. We have died with Christ, we have been buried with him, and we have been risen to new life and for some of us, we've had that picture through our baptism, and I hope that we begin to walk that out where we're not content with where we are, but we are spurred to action, and we are spurred to deeper commitment, and we're spurred on to celebrating Jesus in a very real and tangible way.